eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. Melho was the least of my problems. <laughs> Uh, playing in New York uh, and uh, being able to, you know, establish myself as a Major League Baseball player, uh, you come into the team thinking that everybody has your best interest and, uh, you know, you got this tough love. And uh, some people say, well, if we don't, you know, give you a hard time, that means that we don't care about you and you can do whatever uh, and we don't care about what you do. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, you come into uh, the situation as a wide-eyed, very impressionable young kid thinking that everybody has your best interest and everybody wants you to do well. And the reality of the situation is that you are competing. Burn, baby, burn. Bernie Williams was the most unique of New York stars. He was a crucial part of the last Yankees dynasty. He was clutch on the field, all class off it, and became an acclaimed guitarist away from it. He navigated the media storm of New York, had so many big moments, and wears four World Series rings and played in two more, all while being known as a gentleman? And this week, he's performing the national anthem at a Padres Nationals game. He was a renaissance man, but not always appreciated. He was part of the Yankees core, which came up through the farm system together in the late 80s and early 90s but was allowed to blossom because George Steinbrenner was suspended from daily operations at that time. The boss, he wanted to trade Bernie. Veterans hazed Bernie, and the media thought he was too nice. And yet here we are, 25 years later, and Bernie has his number retired in a plaque in Monument Park. Not bad for a kid from Puerto Rico. This is Bernie Williams' New York accent. Bernie, how you doing? I am doing great. Thank you guys for having me on the show. This is a great honor. My pleasure. So let's go back to the beginning when you're growing up in Puerto Rico. I read this anecdote that you had played Little League against two other future All-Stars, Juan Gonzalez and Pudge Rodriguez. That seems like an insane amount of talent on one Little League or youth baseball field in Puerto Rico. Is that true? 
Uh, well, half of it is true. I did play with Juan Gonzalez for, I think, probably the better part of two years. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, the league, uh, the, the, uh, the level that we were playing at of uh, 15, 16-year-old kids, that division was called the Mickey Mantle division. Uh, so uh, we, wow. uh, uh, he was playing right field and I was playing center field in that team. And that was basically the team that I got chosen from uh, by the uh, scout of the Yankees, uh, a fellow by the name of Roberto Rivera. Uh, he passed, you know, uh, about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but that was his, you know, I was one of his big signings. And uh, Juan Gonzalez was on the same team and he ended up signing uh, with the Rangers, I think a little bit, uh, a couple of months after that, uh, after I got signed, uh, Pudge was a little bit younger than us. So I think, I don't think we uh, ended up playing together, uh, you know, obviously later with the Rangers, but uh, I think my tenure in the Little Leagues uh, sort of was a little bit before his time. What is that transition like when you're growing up in Latin America and you may not speak the language and then you come to the States and you have to try to acclimate to it? For all you guys that had great success, there's so many players that don't have that, that success. How difficult is that transition? I think it's very difficult. I think culturally is, uh, is a challenge. Uh, uh, obviously, it, it depends in great lengths to your uh uh you know how well do you do you speak the language uh coming from a spanish uh spanish speaking uh culture going into you know a completely different setup uh also the time that you sign you know if you sign as a 17 18 year old kid and i want to stress that you are a kid and <laughs> you are being treated like an adult you know you have to have uh you know, you got to have adult responsibilities. And to me, the, the uh, easiest part of the, the game was actually playing those games. You know, the hardest part was to acclimate to a different culture, uh, different language, and uh, just living like an adult, you know, a very uh, uh, adult setting, you know, at the time that you are still uh, growing up and, uh, and trying to find out who you are as a person. When you finally make it to the bigs, you had mentioned playing in the Mickey Mantle division, Mickey Mantle League growing up. When you finally make it to the bigs and you were wearing pinstripes at Yankee Stadium and you're playing center field where Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle once did, and you just said, you're a kid from Puerto Rico, how overwhelming is it? How intimidating is that? It was really intimidating, but not for those reasons. I hardly knew anything about uh, Mickey Mantle or Joe DiMaggio, for that matter, I, I was just happy to make it to the big leagues. Uh, and that, uh, you know, in that sense, it was actually easier for me or, you know, a lot better for me <laughs> not to know those names because I would have been too overwhelmed. Uh, we were actually in a position in 19, I mean, at the beginning of the 90s, 1991, 1992, where I made it into the big leagues and uh, uh, the team, you know, chose to sort of give a lot of uh, uh, time to uh, marketing the, the teams, you know, using the, you know, the older guys, you know, the tradition and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, all those, uh, you know, comments about Luke Gehrig and Babe Ruth and, uh, and uh, Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. Those were the people that they were marketing the team through. <laughs> and I was <laughs> players. And I was like a young whippersnapper trying to make my way to the team. And it's like, why are they talking about all those guys? But 
Uh, I, obviously, ignorance is bliss. And uh, as you are, uh, you know, growing into the team, as I was growing into the team, you know, the years when uh, and, you know, about five, six years into my career, I started really understanding uh, what was that what was that whole thing about, you know, about mentioning all these guys that have uh, a great legacy and a great part of the, the history of this team. And I started feeling proud. I said, oh, man, I am part of something that is way bigger than myself, but I'm, I'm in a position that I can contribute to the history of this club. And while we started, once we started playing in the, in the mid to late nineties, you know, with the, uh, you know, the teams that Buck Walter managed, you know, in 1995, and then, uh, Joe Torre came in 1996 and all that legacy, uh, I feel very proud of uh, the accomplishments of those teams and, uh, where I was a, a big part of that. When you were younger, I read a story that Mel Hall was particularly hard on you, and this was back in the days of rookie hazing. How difficult was that hazing that you took from him, and does it make you think back to how silly rookie hazing is and why they kind of got rid of it nowadays? Well, I think it is, and in a way it isn't, because I think you have to develop this sort of tough skin, especially when you're playing in New York City. I mean, Mel Hall was the least of my problems. <laughs> Uh, playing in New York uh, and uh, being able to, you know, establish myself as a major league baseball player. Uh, you come into the team thinking that everybody has your best interest and, uh, you know, they got this tough love. And uh, some people say, well, if we don't, you know, give you a hard time, that means that we don't care about you and you can do whatever uh, and we don't care about what you do. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, you come into uh, the situation as a wide eyed, very impressionable young kid thinking that everybody has your best interest and everybody wants you to do well. And the reality of the situation is that you are competing, competing with them, you know, for their job, you know, for their livelihood. And uh, it is a competition and it's the best player remains in the team. And uh, they, you know, in a way want to make everything uh, to, you know, make sure that they have a spot on the team as well. So even though it's a, it's a club thing and everybody has a common uh, goal, you know, like winning, uh, there is a, an internal a sense of competing for a job and being the best player for the position uh, so you can establish yourself and start, you know, uh, living your and getting your tenure established as a big leaguer. So uh, in hindsight, I now I understand completely, uh, you know, what was that all about? But as a young player, you you get sort of confused and kind of like uh, distracted by those things. Uh, but, uh, you know, the hazing is, you know, what what doesn't kill you, it can only make you stronger. And I, it was definitely a great experience for me to 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 go through uh, playing in New York and uh, knowing how difficult it is to play in this in this great city. Well, at this time as well, there's rumors that George wants to trade you, that he thinks that there is a way to improve the team right away. You're a young player. He wants an established veteran. He wants to win right away. How much did that distract you or wear on you? Because of all of those reasons you mentioned, you're playing in New York, you're young, you're not from the United States, you're dealing with veterans that look at you as competition and ownership might want to trade you. Those trade rumors must have been really difficult to navigate. Well, I think, uh, you know, if I would have been listening to them, yeah, it would have been really difficult to kind of play with that kind of pressure. Uh, but I always believe that uh, if I could take care of my business on the field, everything else would have, you know, sort of fallen into place. And uh, of course, you know, knowing uh, Mr. George Steinbrenner, you know, and, uh, you know, his, uh, uh, you know, 
traditionally uh, very uh, limited patience with young, especially <laughs> with young players. And it did not happen with me. It happened with the Bobby Meacham and and the, everybody that came before me. Uh, uh, you know, we have a very uh, uh, short leash. Uh, uh, you know, when he was uh, in, uh, you know, obviously making decisions about you know the team. Uh, and I think you know a lot of situations came that I was kind of lucky to uh, be in a position where you know he sort of took a little bit of a sabbatical from the team. And uh, I think in the years that uh, you know the whole thing with uh, Dave Winfield and uh, all of those uh, uh, situations kind of separated him from the team, and that sort of opened the door for people uh, that uh, kind of knew what they had in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, give us an opportunity to actually play through our struggles and give us an opportunity to establish us, uh, ourselves as part of the team. Uh, and uh, I think he kind of understood uh, once that process was, you know, kind of coming to fruition that uh, it was probably in the best interest of the team to give these guys an opportunity to see what they could do before they would think about trading them. So that opened the door for Hensley Mullins and, uh, you know, uh, Kevin Moss and Andy Stankowitz and uh, Oscar Asokar and uh, all those guys that Tim uh, Jim Laritz and Pat Kelly and those, all those people that came before me that sort of paved the way for uh, people like myself to uh, be being given an opportunity to play and uh, show what uh, we could do uh, before you know being th thought about uh, being traded. And even when I was there in the in the you know in the early '90s, they were still you know trying to you know come up with things. Uh, so it was uh, uh, incumbent upon me. To do the work and that and to play and to put some numbers up so I could become indispensable uh, uh, for the team and uh, they will have an opportunity to say hey we cannot make this team work without this person so we better keep him and uh, I always had that attitude hey it's not about them not liking me it's about me making them like me for you know for what I did on the field and uh, I was uh, uh, very fortunate to uh, being in that situation at that time. You played for both Buck Showalter and Joe Torre, two managers that have had a lot of success, but two totally different styles. What was the difference between Buck and Joe as managers? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. 
And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Well, I, I think Buck uh, had uh, something to prove. I think, I mean, they both have something to prove, but in different ways. I think the opportunity that Buck had with the Yankees came from uh, a team that was given a person that never really had any experience, in, any experience managing in the big leagues. And I think he needed to have this connection with the veteran players that he was managing. And obviously he had a, 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 a great sense of what he had in the minor leagues. So that combination worked uh, in many ways. I think he was uh, more of a, uh, you know, he wanted to have control of, of every aspect of uh, the team, you know, the preparation and everything uh, that came, you know, with the team. Uh, uh, it was more of a kind of sort of a military <laughs> sort of a, uh, uh, kind of experience where everything had, you know, a reason to be. And uh, every he was very, very strict as far as time. And uh, if we remember having two, you know, sessions a day. And it was uh, it was a lot. I think, you know, as far as the preparation, uh, it, I think it was a lot more involved. Uh, Joe Torre, on the other hand, uh, has a, had an extensive career in the big leagues, you know, being, a, you know, a most valuable player one year. Uh, he had a great rapport with the press uh and uh but even then when he uh, became the manager of the new york yankees even though he managed the mets before i think he felt like he had something to prove uh, because he never really uh was considered a manager uh a winning manager he always had losing records in all the teams you know most of the teams that he played for uh and he said it you know i never really had the talent that i had you know when i was managing the yankees uh but uh he's uh you know his approach was uh, uh, very different. You know, he only had two rules. A, you play your uh, rear end off and you'll be here on time. And if you do those two things, you know, I'll go through the ringer for you. And uh, he did it many times, you know, saved, you know, he probably let me play two or three more years <laughs> uh, in my career with the Yankees uh, when everybody wanted to sort of trade me or, you know, kind of do, you know, something different with me. He was very loyal and he, you know, very loyal to his players. Uh, and he is definitely uh, one of the, my favorite uh, people in baseball, and we still remain very good friends. You know, you had a great postseason in 1996, and at that point in time, nearly 20 years separated the Yankees from World Series championships was a long time. Take me back to the postseason 96 and Game 6 at Yankee Stadium and Charlie Hayes catching the ball what is that moment like to finally bring a World Series championship back to the Bronx? It was an amazing moment. I still remember the stadium literally shaking. You know, the, the, you know, the upper deck, uh, I mean, the, the energy, the electricity in the air. Uh, Wade Box riding a horse <laughs> in the middle of the field. Uh, <laughs> you know, running around, you know, the stadium, you know, just... Uh, just elated uh, and uh, uh, being able to give that championship to the city of New York at that point uh, where, you know, it was a long time and everything that uh, they remember as a winning team were the 77, 78 Yankees of uh, Ron Guidry and Reggie Jackson and uh, Thurman Munson and uh, Willie Randolph. And that was, you know, basically a generation of players, you know, and we came, you know, kind of like uh, as heavy underdogs, you know, playing one of the best uh, rotations in the history of the game, arguably with uh, the Braves, you know, with Smoltz and uh, Greg Maddox and, uh, uh, you know, uh, all those guys. And uh, uh, coming in, in uh, Andrew Jones, you know, just just basically hand, <laughs> just playing uh, great against us. 
uh, remember Joe Torre's comment uh, to uh, uh, Mr. Steinbrenner after we uh, lost the first game. He said, well, we may probably uh, lose the second game because I don't think, you know, we feel as well. I think we still have uh, ways to find our way uh, in uh, this postseason. But we're going to go out there. We're going to sweep them. And then we're going to finish the job here in New York. And uh, remember George uh, uh, Steinbrenner looking at Joe Torre like, uh, you know, he had two heads. Uh, but we did it. And uh, we he that was, you know, uh, 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 one of the uh, many examples on, on how Joe Torre believed in the team and believe on the work that we have done from spring training uh, and uh, uh, coming all of it through uh, to fruition in, uh, uh, at the end of that season. Uh, and that started, uh, you know, the whole uh, dynasty of the, of the 90s. You know, I think 97 was definitely a fluke <laughs> uh, because we won in 90, not 98, 99, and 2000. And uh, we were one out away from winning in 2001. And we went back in 2003. So uh, uh, it was a great beginning to uh you know a great tenure of, on the history of the club and uh, just proud to be uh, uh part of that part of those guys that yeah. core that you guys had coming through the minors and then part of all those championships yourself jeter pettit posada mariano obviously a very tight bond what is that relationship like between you and those guys that went through all the wars together and won all the rings together it was a great relationship i, I think you know probably one of the best relationships that i've ever seen uh, but I think in that particular instance, uh, I have to give the front office probably the, the best credit because they were the one that were spending the money trying to keep us together. As we became free agents and had an opportunity to explore what uh, opportunities we had on other teams, uh, they were the ones that said, okay, we're going to offer you the best deal so we can stay here and we can remain a tight unit. And, uh, you know, when I became a free agent, they signed me back, you know, when, uh, uh, you know, there was a, an opportunity to bring people that would uh, sort of round up, you know, that core of players. They spare, spare no expense to bring, uh, you know, a Mike Mussina, a David Cohn, you know, uh, Tim Raines, you know, uh, Chili Davis, uh, uh, you know, all those guys. So, uh, I, you know, the team uh, was good because we had a good core, but it, 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 the front office did their job spending the money wisely. And, uh, you know, surrounding us to, you know, the, you know, the best uh, uh, players that they could find uh, so they could they can complement, you know, those teams, you know, in all those years. You know, we have Scott Brochers being the national, I mean, the, the most valuable player in 1998. And he was hitting ninth, you know. So uh, it, it was just a great experience uh, to be part of those teams. And, uh, you know, the scouting uh, people that were, you know, doing their job, you know, the front office and all these, all these guys spending the money trying to keep us together. I think that was a great team effort, you know, in, in all in many, in so many different levels. Your career was so accomplished and so decorated. And yet early on, there were people that thought, man, I, I don't, I don't know if he's got the, the alpha in him, the dog in him to be a great success. Did it ever bother you that people questioned whether you were too mild mannered to be a great athlete? No, no, it, it didn't. I think it was just a great asset to have uh, because there was always a fire burning inside of me. I just never let people, sh uh, never show it. Uh, and I think that to me, that was uh, probably one of the best things that I ever had, not trying not to show a lot of emotion and staying uh, level-headed. Uh, and that was the only way that I knew how to play. Uh, my parents raised me to be a nice person. <laughs> 
So uh, when you come into a situation, especially in New York, especially in a sort of a kind of a dogfight situation, uh, most of the time people misunderstand niceness for weakness. So uh, that was kind of like the, the impression that they had of me. Uh, but uh, it just took a little bit uh, of time for me to really make them understand that I was a nice person, but by any means I was weak. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, the career kind of showed that uh, every time I stepped on, uh, stepped on the field, I gave a hundred percent and I showed the, uh, you know, the intensity, uh, control intensity, cause you don't want to be out of control there. And, you know, uh, and, but the way that I played was one that was very intense internally. Uh, and I took things very seriously uh, very personal. It's striking out was, you know, uh, a no, no for me, uh, you know, making a mistake on the field. And I really took my defense uh, you know, very seriously. Uh, but I didn't think, you know, it was going to be, you know, it was going to do any good to, you know, throw bats or, you know, being thrown out of games. And, uh, I think, you know, I really made a, an attempt to let my plane do the talking as opposed to showing a lot of unnecessary emotion. Well, your reputation is so sterling. You were known as class and a gentleman. You carried yourself with dignity, but also were a competitor. You were a five-time All-Star, a four-time Gold Glove winner, a crucial part of a championship four different times. So you kind of balanced both worlds. And then after your career, you really became such an accomplished guitarist. And we saw it play out in public where you lost your dad to lung disease. And through music... You have been an advocate for awareness and education when it comes to lung disease. The website is Tune Into Lung Health as a website for more information. But tell me how music became a gateway for you to help awareness for how you lost your father. Well, music was always a very important, has always been a very important part of my life. I uh, credit my parents, uh, my mom, that was she was the educator. Uh, she was the one that wanted to make me and my brother well-rounded. So she, you know, exposed us to arts, uh, music, and sports as part of a well-rounded education. And then my dad, that was, you know, that was kind of like the the complement to all that. You know, he was the one that was the you know the wild card, the wild at heart. You know, to say take chances, uh, and he was the one that really started playing the guitar. He brought one from his travels in uh, all over the world. And I started listening to him playing. And he was the one that taught me my first couple of chords. And from that moment on, I, it became really a, a great love affair with music uh, at a time where I was trying to make sense of the world. So it was just a great, uh, uh, it was a fortuitous thing that I had music in my life where I could make uh, sense of all of the things that were happening in my world, you know. And, uh, trying to be a successful person, uh, finding out who I really am and who I really was at the time, uh, and just uh, really uh, turning into music, turning to music uh, to make all those, to answer all those questions. Uh, you know, all about, you know, timing, all about hard work, all about discipline, commitment. Uh, all of those things were really great things that my dad you know, instilled in me uh, through music and through sports, uh, uh, you know, uh, as well, but the mostly music. And I had, I took all that advice and that experience, and I it really, it was basically the basis of my uh, training as a baseball player, uh, knowing, you know, you know how hard it was uh, for me to learn an instrument, and uh, having the experience to go through all that 
uh, knowing that it, 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 you know, it requires a lot of work. It, re it requires you commit. Uh, it requires to, uh, you know, like deal with adversity, uh, uh, you know, like go through mistakes and uh, dusting yourself off and uh, going back in the horse. You know, all those things I learned through music. And uh, it was just so fitting that I uh, uh, was able to use music as well to, uh, to you know, form uh, this relationship with, you know, what he had and what he suffered from, you know, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, it's just uh, one of the uh, most common forms of uh, interstitial lung disease. And it was devastating uh, to see him, uh, you know, uh, uh, pass, you know, in that, uh, in that matter. Uh, it was just crazy to see him and uh, for him to go through what he went through. Uh, so I, you know, in my experience, I didn't want any other families to, to go through what I went through. Uh, he was misdiagnosed for five years until somebody really got the right diagnosis. And by that time, there was not a lot that they could do for him. Uh, so I uh, teamed up with Beringer Engelheim uh, to uh, go uh, to form this uh, campaign called Tune Into Lung Health. And uh, that campaign is designed to, uh, you know, raise awareness about interstitial lung disease. And, uh, you know, going to tuneintolunghealth.com, you, you can get a lot of uh, uh, information about that. And uh, uh, we are trying to utilize music as a coping mechanism to uh, deal with the, uh, you know, the sense of depression, uh, uh, the sense of, uh, you know, the, the physical fatigue. Uh, you get uh, breathing exercises that help you with these conditions. Uh, so uh, it's very encouraging uh, to go into the, uh, that uh, website and uh, know that you're not alone. Uh, you have a support system of people that are going or are, uh, you know, in, involved in the, in the same process that you are. Uh, so I'm encouraging a lot of people to go, everybody to go into Tuning to Long Health. You also have like a playlist of some of, some of my favorite tunes, uh, which is, you know, obviously a, a great thing to have. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is is uh, one of the things that I am doing in my life that really uh, is very rewarding. I know my dad is looking down, uh, saying, you know, hopefully he's proud of what I'm doing. But it, it all uh, came down to uh, uh, help people uh, with uh, this condition uh, and uh, not having people to go through what I went through with my family uh, when he was uh, uh, misdiagnosed uh, and uh, you know eventually had the diagnosis of a uh, pulmonary fibrosis. Inter uh, uh, this interstitial lung disease, uh, you know, group of, of diseases that and my dad was uh, suffering from one of them. So for those that could be suffering from lung disease, but also those that could be suffering from mental health, music, breathing, two very huge keys to helping keep yourself and your mind right and healthy. Those seem so easy, but they're so valuable, aren't they? Yes. I mean, you take breathing for granted. You don't even think about, you know, uh, you know, when you take a breath of air, uh, you do it, you know, sometimes unconsciously, but when you have an interstitial lung disease, every single breath that you take, it, 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 you put so much value in it because, uh, you never know when you're going to take your last breath. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, you know, uh, and, uh, the power of music, the healing power of music, not only for the patients, but for the people that are, you know, taking care of these patients, you know, uh, uh, it's it's a uh, it's a great value. So uh, it's a great combination, and I uh, I am uh, very happy to have that you know be part of that uh, uh, having that available for people that are suffering from uh, these conditions.
tuneintolunghealth.com is the website. It's got all this great information. As Bernie said, it's got website, it's got playlists, it's got a great information for those that want to find out more about that for a family member, breathing exercises, all of that. It's a wonderful website and a catch-all for people that have questions and want to read up more on it. Bernie Williams is a five-time All-Star, a four-time Gold Glove winner. Number 51 is retired, a monument in Monument Park, an acclaimed guitarist as well, and a four-time World Series champion. He joins us here on New York Accent. You can subscribe to this playlist to get more conversations like this through WFAN's YouTube channel and on the podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review to New York Accent. Bernie, this was so much fun. Thanks so much. Burn, baby, burn. And you're doing wonderful work with... A lot of people that really could use your help and assistance. So I know that your dad's looking down, smiling right now. Thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate it. Honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Great to have Bernie Williams here on the podcast. This is this is really the type of guest that New York Accent was built for. A guy that won rings, was a crucial part of championships around here, but had two sides of his personality on it. And off it. And I loved his answer about being considered too mild mannered to be a winner or a great athlete. And talking about how here in New York, that was that was a strength to not get too wrapped up emotionally in what was going on day to day. And that's kind of the perfect antidote to the hysteria and media storm and scrutiny that those Yankees teams got in the nineties and two thousands. Really cool to have Bernie here on the show and that was a lot of fun for a conversation. Time now for our email portion of the of the podcast. And you can send us emails. You can connect with me on both Instagram and on Twitter. On Twitter, you can hit me up at DA on CBS or on Instagram at Damon Amendo. DMs are always open. Follow me there. But this email comes to us from Justin in Paramus who says, DA, I listened to Tommy John last week. He says he was blacklisted from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Do you think ultimately he'll get in? I got to tell you, I loved the chat with with Tommy John last week, but I, I don't think he ultimately gets in. And the reason is, while Tommy John had amazing longevity, and I just think it's staggering that he had basically um, a procedure that was really experimental at the time in the late 70s or mid-70s. Nobody knew if he could come back and pitch again. I think it's absolutely extraordinary that he was able to come back. Obviously, the surgery named after him, that's a legacy thing. No one will ever forget the name Tommy John long after he's no longer here and long after none of us are here because everyone will always recite his name connected to that surgery that baseball players are going to have forever. But I don't think he ultimately gets in because even though he has 288 wins, and as he noted, more than 100 no decisions, so if you just wanted to quarter that, if you figured, well, half of those are wins, half of those are losses, and give him a quarter of of the no decisions of wins that would put him well over 300, which is the magic number, he was never dominant enough to where I think the voters will look past that and just look at longevity. You know, there wasn't a series of 
five years, six years where he had a couple of times leading the league in wins. There wasn't a couple of years where he led the league in strikeouts. There wasn't a couple of years where he led the, the league in ERA. He was really good for a really long time, but never dominant. And usually, usually the committee rewards even a short stint of dominance over a long stint of very good. Now, not always the case. I mean, look, we've seen Harold Baines get in the Hall of Fame. So there is a chance for anybody in the Veterans Committee to to look at a long body of work and say that guy was good enough. But I, I think it's going to be hard because it's hard to pinpoint a handful of years where you say, well, th- he was one of the best players in baseball or one of the best pitchers in baseball during that time. The best case would be his late 70s, really, after Tommy John's surgery, after the surgery happened. But I, I think it's always going to hold him back that he he just never had that that run where he was one of the best in the game. But that being said, boy, does he have a hell of a baseball life. And I, I really loved talking to him last week. And I think there's always a an appetite for hearing recently retired players, a guy like Bernie Williams, who has been retired for, what, 15 years now, 10 years now, but, but still is very connected to a modern fan, which I love as well. But I think the guys that played a long time ago, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, that are still with us, and Tommy John just turned 80 years old this week, those guys have stories and they're really willing to dish. You know, you could, I mean, when Tommy was was cursing and Tommy is laying into the guy, he, he didn't name the guy that he thinks kept him out of the Hall of Fame. That's, that's a player, that's a former player that is willing to, to, to call it as he sees it. And I think that's very refreshing in a time and an age where the modern athlete has to worry so much about what they say, who they say it about, going viral, et cetera, for the wrong reasons, making somebody upset. I I love the old guys that are just willing to to shoot from the hip and tell us how they they see it. I so I really, really like that Tommy John conversation last week. That was last week's episode. Every Tuesday we deliver a new episode of New York Accent. So you can find this all places that your podcasts are available. Subscribe, rate, and review. If you do rate it and you do review it, it's a little bit of time out of your schedule, but it really helps other people find the podcast. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, I would appreciate that as a, as a thank you because, again, that helps other people find the podcast. You can usually catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side of things, but also on weekends on WFAN. And thanks to subscribing and listening to New York Accent. Thanks so much to executive producer Bryce Gelman. I'm DA Damon Amendolara. We'll see you next week, next Tuesday, for another edition of New York Accent. This is an Odyssey original series.